There was a song that we sometimes sing that says, Lord, from sorrows deep I call. It's in fact the name of the song as well. And that song is based upon Psalm 42, but there is a sense in this psalm in which David is calling to God from sorrows deep. Here we find David praying from the depths of anguish. In this psalm, we find him praying from the depths of despair. And if you have been there, you know that being there is not pleasant. Sometimes when you're in that place of despair and despondency, you feel as though you're face planted on the ground, and at best you can muster whimpers. Sometimes you might literally be face planted on the ground, and you don't even know what to say. You're just in the presence of the Lord, and you're in a place of anguish. And with little whimpers, you're crying out to the Lord. I think that what can make those times even more challenging is the concern that your affliction might be a result of loving chastisement from God. You know those times when you don't feel like Job. Job who was suffering with no point of reference to a specific sin. Those times when you don't feel like that. Now you know you cannot interpret your providence flawlessly. But you're looking at your situation and certain sins are coming to mind and you're like, is this happening? Is this situation that I'm in? Is this providence that I'm facing? Is this affliction that I'm feeling? Is this coming as a result of my sinfulness? And you don't know because you cannot interpret your providence flawlessly, but you wonder. And when you don't feel like Job with no specific point of reference to a specific sin and you're suffering and you don't have the clear conscience that you might have otherwise had if you weren't engaged in whatever that sin was, it can make those times of affliction, I think, all the more challenging. At least it has some unique challenges. I say that to say that appears to be where David was in this psalm. That appears to be where he was in this psalm. Psalm 6 is sometimes referred to as the first of seven penitential psalms. Now, while we do not see in this psalm a specific confession of sin, when you walk through the psalm and you see David's references to God's anger and displeasure, it would nonetheless suggest that he was under the chastisement of God. He was under the chastising hand of a loving God. And just because, by the way, we don't see confession of sin in this psalm, does not mean that it is not tremendously important. It is. Read Psalm 32, and you'll see how important it is. You can read Proverbs 28, 13. We are called to confess and forsake sins. I think there's clearly within this psalm an implied acknowledgement of sinfulness, but in other cases there is explicit acknowledgement of it. Now let's consider the superscript rather briefly, and then we'll make our way into the text. The superscript reads, To the chief musician with stringed instruments on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. So first, it should come as no surprise to us that this psalm was given to the chief musician, and it would be his responsibility to make sure that it was expedited with excellence, with musical arrangement that was to be accompanied with it, and done with excellence. And we see that this was to be played with stringed instruments and on an eight-stringed harp. Again, this might be a simple comment, but I'm reminded, especially in Psalm 4, Psalm 5, and Psalm 6, now that we're going through Psalm 6, God's design in having music accompany worship and how sometimes it will be flutes sometimes it's an eight-stringed harp sometimes it's an instrument that we do not know what it was but it was an instrument that was used in that time and it just I think should make us think of the great honor that we have in participating in worship with instrumentation 
It's part of God's design for worship. Now, as we get into the text, we begin in verse 1 where we read, O Lord, or O Yahweh, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Now, in our English translations, we see just about the same language used in Psalm 38, verse 1. In Psalm 38, verse 1, David wrote, O Lord, or O Yahweh, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. There, in that psalm, if we were going to walk through Psalm 38, we would clearly see that David's affliction was connected to his sin. There it is explicit. David says as much in verse 3. In Psalm 38, verse 3, he says, There is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. And again, here the same dynamic appears to be at work. Now, if you look at verse 1, there appears to be a sense of progressive parallelism that's used here. David says to the Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. So the word rebuke connotes verbal, a kind of verbal rebuking. But then we see in the next part of the verse, do not chasten me or nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. That's a physical connotation, the chasten part. So you get the idea that David, if you just look at verse 1, is basically saying something like this to God. He didn't want God to correct him with what he perceived to be rigor. David's suffering was to him, from his vantage point at that moment, his suffering appeared to be so fierce that it was a reflection of God's great anger towards him and God's great displeasure with him. Now, David likely knew that his chastisement was well warranted and that his sin, whatever it might have been, provoked the anger of God. And it wasn't that David thought God was unjust in his dealings with his servant, but David is appealing that the temperature of the affliction, so to speak. You get that idea from the word hot that's used here, hot displeasure. It connotes in the Hebrew a kind of burning. David felt as though the chastisement that he was experiencing was too hot for him. The temperature was too hot. The temperature was too high. And he was looking for God to turn it down. The prophet Jeremiah used similar language. In Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 24, he says, O Lord, or O Yahweh, correct me, but with justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Now again, look at verse 1, and I want you to notice what David does not pray for in verse 1. He says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. He does not pray for the removal of chastisement. I find that interesting. He's just praying that it would be toned down a little bit. That's essentially what David is asking for. There was a heaviness that he felt that, to use language from Charles Spurgeon, made the rod feel like a sword. But he didn't pray for the removal of chastisement. And I think that's important for us to see. Be that as it may, that the chastisement felt the way it did, that the rod felt like a sword... Nonetheless, chastisement from God is done in love. And we know, especially looking at the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, we know that it is a clear mark of sonship. In Proverbs chapter 3, Solomon wrote, and the writer of Hebrews, by the way, would reiterate this, beginning at verse 11, we should not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest His correction. For, verse 12, whom the Lord loves, He corrects. 
just as a father, the son in whom he delights. The writer of Hebrews would say in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. The writer of Hebrews would go on to acknowledge that no chastening seems to be joyful at the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, that's an important word to note, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Hebrews 12, 11. Psalm 94, verse 12, especially the first half, I think sums up well what the Christian's view of divine chastisement should be. There the text says, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord. Chastisement, right, correcting, is a necessary part of good parenting. If you hate your child, you will not chastise them, you will not punish them, you will not correct them. Proverbs 13.24 makes that clear. If you want to show your child that you hate them, if you want to do what you can to ensure a bad outcome for them in the future, you read through the Proverbs and you'll see very clearly, do not chastise them. Do not correct them. Do not punish them. Scripture says very clearly, he who spares the rod hates his son. And then the second half of that proverb says, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. So now if we, as fallen human beings, could come to see, and the writer of Hebrews would make this kind of argument, he he would say, you know, that we have had, at least some people have had, fathers who have corrected us, and then post-correction, whether it's immediately, not too long after, or sometime in the future, we looked back and we appreciated the correction that we received. We appreciated the discipline that we received. The writer of Hebrews uses that kind of argumentation, and then he goes on to say, shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? Hebrews 12, 9. He's using a how much more argument. So if you, from a human vantage point, say it's a good thing when parents in love correct their children, if you could look back and you could see that and you know it's a good thing, how much more? Here's a how much more argument. How much more should we subject ourselves? And the idea there in the, in, in the Greek is that we should be willing to submit to the chastisement of God when we find ourselves in those times of affliction. Rather than railing against the dealings of God in our life, we should all the more submit to it. We bow the knee because we know that God has good intentions for his people. And a little bit of theology that I think will be helpful for everyone in this room is to know that if you are a son or daughter of God, and granted, I want to keep making this point, you cannot interpret your providence perfectly. Sometimes you'll be wondering, is this a result of some sin that I did? Am I going through this because of that? And you need to know that the scripture is clear. All the wrath of God towards you has been absorbed by Jesus Christ on the cross. If you find yourself and you think, well, you know what? This just happened and I did that and maybe this is as a result of this. You need to know that God's dealing with you is not out of wrathfulness. He loves you. He's a loving father. And everything that he allows to come into your life And everything that he purposes to the end of chastisement is for your good. He loves you more than you can imagine. This is also worth noting as well. When you look in the New Testament, particularly Hebrews chapter 12, the same word that's used for chastisement, and it can mean that, chastisement, can also be used to refer to rearing or training. 
So if you just look at it from a holistic perspective as a Christian, when we go through seasons of affliction, whether it's in light of outward circumstances or inward affliction and pain, all of it for the son or daughter of God is part of him rearing up a child of God so that he or she might be conformed to the image of Christ. You have to have that in your mind because that will help regardless of what you go through. You know that he's causing all things to work together for your good. You know that every circumstance, every situation is actually being leveraged for your good, for your holiness, for an eternal purpose. That changes the way you look at trials. I wonder if God's mad at me. No, Christ absorbed your wrath. And he may be correcting you. But this is not some sort of judicial punishment. This is a father dealing with a loved son or daughter. And you may be walking through the fire, but the fire is going to remove the dross. And when you come out the other side, maybe to a degree this side of eternity, but doubtless when you're standing before Christ, you will know that there was all good purposes. All of the attributes of God for you, son or daughter of God, are leveraged towards you for your good. How amazing is that? When you consider the ingredients that are found in the chastisement, when we actually do go through seasons of chastisement, but holistically, it's all part of the rearing up of a son or daughter of God, all the affliction that we go through. If you look in the ingredients that are found in the midst of that chastisement, you'd find things like love, compassion, kindness, and you wouldn't find wrath. It's just not one of the ingredients in God's chastisement of his children. Now, as we go on to verse 2, this is helpful because just because we know that does not mean that in the midst of it, we cannot cry out for mercy and help. You think about David right here. In verse 2, he says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, or O Yahweh, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. So this phrase, have mercy on me, a key one, David is not asking God for what he deserves. He's asking God for mercy. He's asking God to give him what he doesn't deserve, to withhold the punishment that he deserves. Or at least, as we know in light of verse 1, to temper it, so to speak. He says, for I am weak. For I am weak. I just want to make a note here about what that implies David thinks about God. David's statement there, for, for, this is why I'm asking you to have mercy on me. For I am weak assumes that he thinks that God cares that he's weak. And I think that is so instructive for us. He's using that level of argumentation. Please have mercy on me, for I'm weak. And that assumes that God actually cares, and God does. If God would have compassion on groaning Israelites who are under Egyptian bondage, how much more, when we think about this through the lens of New Testament Christianity, how much more does he look upon the groaning of those that he has bought with the blood of his son? David says, have mercy on me, for I am weak. The word that's used here in the Hebrew for weak, it's used four times. It connotes being feeble or pining away. You ever been there? And you feel like a leaf that's withering? That's where David felt. That's how David felt. The specific outflow of mercy that David had in mind, you can see in the second half of verse 2. The have mercy of verse, the first half of verse 2 becomes heal me in the second half of the verse. Now, there are some commentators who look at this and they say, well, in light of the entirety of the psalm, when you see what troubles David was going through, is this a a metaphoric statement here when he's asking for God to heal him and he's describing his bones? And some argue that it is. But I would say in light of what David's going through, just taking the text at face value and thinking of him going through a physical time of affliction as a result of everything else he was going through isn't strange. It's not stretching the text at all. It's kind of taking it at face value. He was weak, 
And perhaps, we don't know for sure, perhaps he had an illness that was affecting him as well. Perhaps he was just wearied in light of not being able to sleep and in being in the depths of despondency like he was. That will affect you physically. Then he goes on, and now I think he kind of appeals to what is his bigger problem in light of everything. In verse 3 he says, My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Yahweh, how long? I think that, the second part of verse 3, is the bigger concern. Like, like, God, where are you? How long? More about that in a moment. But look at the beginning of verse 3. He says, My soul is also greatly troubled. Perhaps that reminds you of the words of your Savior in John chapter 12. If it doesn't, don't worry, I'll remind you about it again at the end of this message. Because Jesus said, my soul is greatly troubled. And then what he said after is definitely instructive and helpful for us. So here is David. And he says, my soul is greatly troubled. Now, just to give you a little bit of a view of the entirety of the psalm, it's not hard to see why his soul was greatly troubled. When you go through the entirety of the psalm, you could see that David felt as though God was displeased with him. You see that in verse 1. David felt physically weak. You see that in verse 2. David felt that he was at death's doorstep. You'll see that in verse 4. David knew that his enemies, let's just put it this way, did not have his best interest in mind, and he had enemies, and you'll see that in verse 7. So David had a lot of reasons for his soul to be greatly troubled. And by using the word soul, it's as though David is saying that right down to the essence of who I am, I am troubled. I am troubled. And then he said, but you, O Yahweh, how long? How long? That might be connoting the way in which David just felt spent and exasperated. It can come off as an incompleted thought. But you, O Yahweh, how long? How long? Perhaps you have people in your life that have certain um, words or phrases that they say. And there are certain catchphrases, certain words that they use a lot. Uh, We've noticed that both Lauren and I use the word all right quite a bit. So like if we're just getting ready to move from place A to place B, before we do so, oftentimes we'll say, all right, all right. And this was brought to our attention by Thea, who would repeat, all right, in her own little baby way. I'm like, what, all right? I'm like, wow. And then Lauren's like, oh, I, I, I say all right a lot. I'm like, I say all right a lot, too. I wasn't like trying to compete. Like, no, she's saying that because I say it a lot. But we do say that. And I think of family members. I got a whole bunch of examples. I think of some of you. And I know that there are some phrases that some of us like to say or some words that we like to say. And perhaps you would find this phrase to be one that's near and dear to your heart. But you, oh Lord, how long? You know, Spurgeon noted that this was Calvin's favorite expression. Oh, Lord, how long? (laughs) The man who's often referred to as the great reformer, at least one of the great reformers. According to Spurgeon in his work, The Treasury of David, he said that one of Calvin's favorite expressions, if not the favorite expression, was, Oh Lord, how long? If you find yourself liking that phrase, that question, you're in good company. Asaph used those words quite a bit in the Psalms. 
Psalm 74, verse 10, 79, verse 5, Psalm 80, verse 4. Ethan, the Ezraite, in Psalm 89, verse 46, used the words, how long? Moses used those words in Psalm 90, verse 13. The angel of the Lord with whom Zechariah spoke used the words, how long? In Zechariah chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Habakkuk used the words, how long? Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2. The martyrs in heaven depicted in the book of Revelation are using the words, how long? In Revelation 6, 10. So if you ever find yourself saying, Oh Lord, how long? Please know you are in good company. You're not alone. And you may not be, and hopefully you're not, a misery loves company person just for the sake of having company in misery. But there is a sense in which we derive comfort knowing that what we're going through has been experienced by others. Particularly saints of old and sons and daughters of God. So if you find yourself in a season, you're like, I don't know how much more. Lord, how long? No, you're in good company. God had those words inspired quite a bit in the text of Scripture for us to read. In verse 4, David continued, and now watch, he's going to start giving arguments for why he's hoping God will deliver him. The first one we see in verse 4, we'll see another one in verse 5. In verse 4 we read, Return, O Lord, or O Yahweh, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. So here he's continuing his appeal, and now he's giving some arguments. Kind of did a little bit in verse 2, doing more so now in verses 4 and 5. And so he says, return, O Lord. So the language there in the Hebrew could connote turn, like turn to me, O Lord, or literally as we read it, return to me, which suggests that David felt distant from God. Return to me, O Lord, or turn to me. So he's feeling some measure of distance. But what he's looking for specifically in the returning that he's calling for is deliverance. Deliver me. What he's looking for is God to rescue him. Look at the second half of the verse. Oh, save me. So the returning at the beginning of verse 4 can connote the sense of relational distance he felt amidst what was likely his sin and divine chastisement. But what he's looking for is deliverance. He's looking for God's rescue. He's looking for God's saving him out of the midst of the circumstances he he found himself in. Now, when David wrote, oh, save me for your mercy's sake, David appealed, as one commentator noted, to God on the basis of his unfailing love, hesed, which can also be translated as loyalty. The same commentator, Tremper Longman III, continued writing, this loyal love is based on the covenant, where God promises to be His people's God and take care of them when they turn to Him. So I want you to get David's argumentation here. He's saying, oh, save me for your mercy's sake. And as noted, that word that's used there is the Hebrew word hased. It's an appeal to God's covenant faithfulness, His covenant love, His covenantal kindness, and His loyalty to the commitment that He makes to His covenant people. So David's argumentation seems to be something like this. God, rescue me. God, deliver me. For the sake of your mercy, i.e., for the sake of your covenant-keeping love. And the implication appears to be something like this. If I don't come out of this, if I fall to the hands of my enemies, if I drown in the midst of my despondency, that could make you look bad. (laughs) 
Especially in that Old Covenant context with David being the king and David being on the receiving end of the Davidic covenant and so on. It's as though David has a God-first mentality here. And he's not just doing this, right, to just twist God's arm like, hey, you want to get me out of this because it's not going to look good for you if you don't. But there's a rightness to him saying, deliver me for your mercy's sake. You're faithful to your people. You're faithful to your covenant. And again, unique application within this old covenant context, specifically to David, who is the Lord's anointed. But nonetheless, he's appealing to God's name and God's renown. But then he's going to talk a little bit about himself. Look at that. Look what you see in verse 5. For in death there is no remembrance of you, and in the grave who will give you thanks? And what is David saying here? I think David is essentially saying that if he died, he would be unable to continue in the profession of thanksgiving publicly as it relates to God's goodness. Now you'll see that. Look at the remembrance in the beginning of verse 5, right? For in death there is no remembrance of you. But this is Hebrew poetry. And so often you see, like in the Psalms and the Proverbs, that the second half of the line informs the first half of the line and back and forth. So the remembrance that's spoken of here is likely, and you could jot this down, a kind of Psalm 122 verses 4 and 5 remembrance where the tribes would come up for their annual pilgrimages and they would worship and they would give thanks to God publicly and they would call to remembrance what God had done for them on their behalf. So if you look at the beginning of verse 5, there is no remembrance of you in the grave who will give you thanks. Second half of verse 5, David appears to be saying something like this. If I die, I will not be able to give you the public thanksgiving that you deserve. I will not be able to call to remembrance your faithful deeds and your mighty acts. He's got the view of the land of the living in mind. Because if I go there, I won't be able to do here what I'm supposed to be doing here. Think about what that says for the purpose of life on earth. So David first appeals to God's covenant loyalty, and then he appeals to his purpose of praising God. David put a premium on praising God. It's as though he's saying, saying, I can't die because if I die right now, at this point in time, I won't be able to give you the public praise and thanksgiving that you deserve. If only we had such a view of how significant our worship is when we come together corporately. Please do not think that it's just a little, a little preface before you know, the bigger things of you know, corporate prayer together and the preaching of the word. It's all a big thing in the eyes of God. And granted, the central is the proclamation of the gospel, but do not think that it is not precious to give God corporate thanksgiving and calling to remembrance what he's done, even as we do in singing together. Now, I do want to note this. I do want to note that it is worth noting that from an Old Testament saint perspective, um, the view of life after death was not as clear as it is for the New Testament saint. Okay, so I want to make that clear. For the Old Testament saint, somebody like David, the view of life after death was not as clear as it is for the New Testament saints. So let me just make a note of that. Again, I think David is speaking about here the idea of being in the public assembly and giving God thanks, but I do want to make a note of this. In 2 Timothy, we saw this, and we studied 
studied 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10 says how Christ's coming brought much greater light to eternal life and immortality through the gospel. So the Old Testament saint, and I want to show you this in a moment, while aware of blessed subjects like the resurrection of the dead, and they were well aware of that, at least we see in a number of examples, when compared to the words of the Apostle Paul, who could say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, there was a lack of clarity in comparison to New Testament clarity. But with that being said, I want you to be clear. The Old Testament saints did realize that there was life and existence after death. They knew that. Proverbs 23, verses 17 and 18 reads, Do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day, for surely there is a hereafter, and your hope will not be cut off. They were aware that there was a hereafter, and that their hope would not be cut off. Job. Job was aware of the resurrection. Job 19, verses 25 through 27. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Isaiah 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. You can look at David's own words in places like Psalm 16 and Psalm 17. And you could be well assured that the Old Testament saints knew of a coming resurrection. They knew of a hereafter. Now back to the text. Again, David is appealing here to God's praise and glory, verse 4, and kind of in verse 5 as well. And the argument appears to be something like this. If I die, I cannot do what I was created to do in the here and now. Then he goes on in verses 6 and 7 and says, I'm weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of my enemies. And one of the things you want to be on the lookout for when you go through the Psalms is, what do the Psalms teach you about who God is? Sometimes it's more explicit than others. Here I want to give you another implicit observation similar to the one I made at verse 2. Why is David saying all this? Why is he telling God about how much he's crying? Why is he telling God about his groaning and his bed being drenched with tears? And the implication is because God cares. It's not because God doesn't know. He knew that God knew. He's saying it because he knows that God cares. Now, perhaps you know what it's like to be so wearied by distress that you find it hard to sleep, and sometimes perhaps you've been up all night and you couldn't sleep and you've just cried and you wondered how long you would cry for, you wondered if your crying would stop. And again, I want to remind you, you're not alone. David, the man who was identified as a man after God's own heart, knew what that was like. Not only him, Jeremiah's scribe, Baruch, interesting chapter. It's only five verses long, I encourage you to read it. Um, 
Baruch said, I fainted in my sighing and I find no rest. That man went through a lot. He was alongside of Jeremiah. He was on the receiving end of persecution like Jeremiah. And what did he get to see with his own eyes? He got to see the falling of Jerusalem. And and there was more still to come. He lived through a lot. And he said he fainted in his sighing and he found no rest. Jeremiah in like manner, post the fall of Jerusalem in the book of Lamentations, describes his sighs as many and his heart as faint. Lamentations chapter 1, verse 22. And lest we forget, Jesus Christ, the one who was perfectly obedient to the Father in everything that He did, is nonetheless identified in Isaiah 53 as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Again, do not think it's strange when you enter into some fiery trial of some kind as though something strange has happened to you. Not only are Christians around the world experiencing it, not only have Christians for the last close to 2,000 years been experiencing it, but Old Testament saints have also experienced it. And Jesus Christ knew what it was like to be a man who was acquainted with sorrows and grief. Look at David's language here. He felt beaten into fatigue by groaning. He said, I am weary with my groaning. Sighing and sorrow took their toll on him, as they so often do with us. He continued saying, all night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with tears. Now the verbs here connote a kind of ongoing activity. You get the imagery, right? The imagery is connoting probably two things at the same time. He's crying so much, it's as though his bed could swim on all the tears that he's crying. And his bed is so drenched with tears, it's like it's soaking wet from all of his crying. He goes on and he says, my eye wastes away because of grief. The word grief there could be rendered in the Hebrew vexation. So this could be speaking about his enemies, his eye is wasting away, not only because of grief, but because of the vexation um, of his enemies or the anger that he felt as a result And the language here connotes that he felt as though his eye was wasting away. He's like, I'm crying so much, it's as though my eye is just getting worn out. That's how he felt. And by the way, just in case you were to think, okay, well, David went through this, and maybe this was like an isolated occurrence, and he went through this for a little while. No, when David speaks in Psalm 31, verse 10, he describes his life like this. Particularly, I'm calling your attention to the second phrase. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. So he went through things for a while. And granted, they may have, may have been to some degree intermittent at times, but he went through things for a while. Remember that phrase that you might like, Oh Lord, how long? We're not to think, one, that David like uttered this, you know, he went through this in, in the morning and then uttered how long in the afternoon. Right? He was probably going through this trial for a long time and was, was thinking, I don't even know when this is going to end. We're going to see the, the matter kind of turn around in a moment, but I just want you to see this before we get to the turn. He was a man who knew what it was like to be in a season of waiting, wondering if things were going to change and wondering if God was going to come through. So don't think it's strange if you find yourself in such a season and if you're saying how long. I want to call your attention to one other thing as well. He feels as though he's under the chastise, chastisement of God, and what does he do? Where does he go? goes to God. It goes right to God. I know this is an imperfect example, um, but one of the things that I love is when uh, little Thea 
is about to touch something that she shouldn't touch, and then her mommy or myself uh, will say, don't touch that. We'll say it in a nice voice. We're like, don't touch that. So we'll say it like in a nice way. Like, hey, no, no, don't touch that. And one of the images that I have in my mind that I so love is that she will be, not, not that I love this part of it, but I love the second part of it. She will begin to cry. And all of a sudden it's slow. It's like this little face that begins to like tear and her face begins to like kind of um, just look upset and sad. But then the next thing that she'll do, especially if Lauren is holding her, and that's when a lot of these things happen. Either I'm holding her and she's reaching for something or Lauren's holding her. And then she'll just kind of fall on mommy or fall on daddy. And there's a sense in which that's what David's doing right here. He feels like he's under the correcting hand of God and who is he fallen upon? The same God. The same hand that he feels is lovingly correcting him is the same hand that he knows is lovingly welcoming him even as he's praying. But now, watch what happens in verses 8 and 9. In verses 8 and 9, David says, Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Well, that's a sharp and surprising turn, isn't it? In light of everything that we just saw, in light of all the pictures that have been painted, you might have been wondering, wow, this this psalm is a pretty heavy one. Well, then all of a sudden there's a turn right here. From the depths of despair comes a surprising cry of confidence. And I want you to know, it's not that the circumstances have changed yet. You look at verse 10, and they didn't change yet. David anticipated that they will change. But in this moment, they did not change. But all of a sudden, he had a blessed assurance that the help he was searching for would indeed come. And that assurance is what made all the difference. Now, prayer, a little theology on prayer. Prayer is often used by God to change circumstances. The God of heaven will use the prayers of his people to change circumstances. But right here, you have an example of how God will use the prayers of his people to change his people in the midst of unchanged circumstances. That's what's happening right here. God often will use prayer to change circumstances. Right here, he's changing David in the midst of unchanging circumstances. That head that was hanging low now is lifting up, and all of a sudden confidence springs forth from the despair. Perhaps it'll help us all to look at those lines from what a friend we have in Jesus a little bit differently. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Think about what seasons. Now, I don't know, in the mystery of God's sovereign superintending of the lives of His people, there's a mystery here, according to James 4, where there are some things that we could ask for that we don't, and we don't receive, right? You have not because you ask not. So how long do we go through seasons of despondency or despair and distress and anxiety because we don't get to the prayer closet as soon as we should? And oh, in the midst of that time, as we pour out our heart to God, as we tell Him how we're feeling, we tell Him that we're broken, we're telling Him that we're weary, and then all of a sudden, assurance perhaps will come in that very moment. And you just feel uplifted. Not because circumstances changed, but you have a fresh view of heaven. You have a fresh view of the nearness of Christ. You have a fresh trust in the sovereignty of God that God is wise and He's orchestrating your situation for your good and His glory and to conform you to the image of Christ. And all of a sudden, you leave the prayer closet in circumstances that haven't changed, but you feel changed because the God of heaven met you right in the midst of your despair and He lifted up your head. 
So son or daughter of God, just, just be reminded, if you feel like that, you feel weary, perhaps that's part of what God will use to bring you right to himself, right before his throne, so he could hear your heart. Maybe you'll hear his, as it were, as you open up the word of God and you hear his voice in the text of scripture. And then he takes you by the hand and lifts you up. I can't guarantee you at every moment that you pray. There are some psalms that end with a kind of lament tone. At least I think of one that comes to mind. Typically in lament psalms we do see it turn. So kind of the the standard we should expect is to feel encouraged after being in the presence of God. But whether or not you feel encouraged when you leave the prayer closet, you can doubtless know that your voice has been heard and your God loves you. So David now, all of a sudden, he has this full assurance and he sets a a warning before his foes. He essentially tells them they better get a move on. That's essentially what he's saying. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. It's as though his enemies had surrounded him. This is the picture that's painted. It's as though they had surrounded him. And then in this moment of assurance, he says, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. It's as though he's saying, you better get a move on. And perhaps, perhaps... This connotes David's kingly position at this time. Can't say that with certainty, but perhaps. Why do I say that? Because when Jesus speaks about him saying those words in Matthew chapter 7 and in Luke chapter 13, it's from a kingly position. Remember Jesus in Sermon on the Mount, I'll call your attention to specifically in Matthew chapter 7. He said that on that day that many will say to him, Lord, Lord. But he would say to them, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. They weren't the ones that did the will of his Father in heaven, which is a mark, one of the marks of a true son or daughter of God, right? Oh, you're not saved by obedience, but obedience is a mark of being saved. We see that evident in 1 John over and over again. And Jesus, from that kingly position, says to those who say, Lord, Lord, but nonetheless were practices, were, were those who practice lawlessness, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. I do want to make a, a call in this moment. Knowing that David said this to his enemies is one thing. And doubtless, it would have been a fearful thing to be D- David's enemies, knowing that the Lord heard his prayer, heard his weeping, and so on. But it is a much more fearful thing to be on the receiving end of the Lord Jesus saying this. You do not want to be one who stands before Jesus on that day. And Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Depart from me, I never knew you. How can you be assured that you will not be among such on that day? Depart from your iniquity. Turn away from your self-righteousness. Don't trust in yourself for the forgiveness of sins. Say, I bow the knee to King Jesus. I want to depart from sin and self-righteousness. I know I will not do it perfectly this side of eternity, but I want to make a break from that and I pledge my allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. I trust that He died for my sins and He rose from the grave. You depart from that, you run to Him, and you come to Him with a full assurance of faith that all who come to Him will in no wise be cast out. You repent of your sins, you trust in the Son of God, and you experience the forgiveness of sins and peace with God. David here lists some of the reasons why his enemies were to depart. It wasn't because David was strong. It was because Yahweh listens. He said, the Lord heard his weeping, verse 8. 
The Lord heard his supplication, first half of verse 9, and the Lord heard his prayer, second half of verse 9. See, David's tears didn't soak his bed in vain. You might say that those tears were as prayers joined alongside of his petition. And he said, the Lord has heard it. He has heard the voice of David's weeping. Brief encouragement. I want you to know, son or daughter of God, that though your tears may come, at one point in the future, they will be part of a bygone age. In the meantime, the Lord hears your weeping. He bottles your tears, to use language from another psalm, and they are indeed precious in His sight. But there is coming a day when tears will be part of a bygone age. In Psalm 65, verse 19, the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah that in the Jerusalem that He is creating as a rejoicing, that He creates as a rejoicing, the voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. So that's coming. Let every tear that you cry in the here and now be a reminder to you that one day there will be no more tears. And in the meantime, may it be a point of contact between you and your Savior, who during the days of His flesh offered up loud cries with tears and was heard, even as David was heard. All right, verse 10, the implication is that the Lord will act on David's behalf and he anticipates his enemies experiencing forthcoming shame. Verse 10, let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. So the shame that David's enemies would experience were likely connected, was likely connected to their plots against him failing. David was greatly troubled in verse 3. We saw that. And now it's as though he's saying, let the trouble that they brought upon me, let it boomerang and come back upon them. That appears to be the idea here. He was essentially praying that the trouble that they sought to heap upon him would come back upon them. And then I do think there's an interesting picture that's painted in the second half of verse 10. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. The language is interesting. Uh, I think, I think it's painting a picture of something like this, that his enemies are kind of charging at him. So a picture like enemies running after this person that they're going to devour in a moment, and then all of a sudden, as quick as they're running at him, all of a sudden they start running away from him. And the shame is likely connoted in that kind of picture. They were so confident that they were going to destroy David, and the next moment they're running away from David. Not because David is strong, but because Yahweh heard Well, I want to close by saying, although it may not appear so at first glance, I think this psalm can help us appreciate what the Lord Jesus Christ went through on our behalf. David said in verse 3, My soul is troubled. And Jesus, not long at all before His sacrifice, would say in John chapter 12, verse 27, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And perhaps you remember the exclamation that came next. Father, glorify Your name. It's kind of the heartbeat that we see earlier in the psalm. In Psalm 6, verses 4 and 5, it's about Your name. For Your mercy's sake, save me. 
And what am I going to say? Jesus said, save me from this hour. It's for this purpose I came to this hour. This is the prayer. Father, glorify Your name. In the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our tears, may we, by the grace of God, come to a point where we say, for this purpose, the sovereign God of heaven has brought me to this hour. And He's brought me for a reason. And above all things, Father, I pray this, even if I don't understand it, Father, I pray, glorify Your name. I don't know why I went down this path. I don't know why I've experienced these things. I don't know all of those things. But in this very hour, I know for this purpose I've come to this hour so that your name might be glorified. And if my Savior would say that, not too long before he would bear the wrath that I could barely even begin to wrap my mind around, how much more can I say, Father, glorify your name, knowing that my Savior bore the wrath of God so that I would never have to bear it. See, David is in this psalm, he's praying that the Lord's displeasure with him as he perceives it would be tempered. Jesus never displeased the Father. He was the one with whom the Father was well pleased. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But yet Jesus on our behalf would bear the displeasure and the wrath of the Father so that we would never have to so that we could be chastised as sons and daughters, not punished as enemies. Jesus bore that. David said that he made his bed swim with tears, and perhaps we can think of how the Lord Jesus Christ sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane before he would suffer for our sins, and how he offered up prayers with loud cries and tears, according to the writer of Hebrews. David had to deal with those who assaulted him and wanted to cause him shame. Jesus knew what it was like to deal with those who assaulted him and wanted to cause him shame. But in the final analysis, even as God would vindicate David, as we see in verse 10, in the final analysis, Jesus was vindicated by the Father. And he was raised from the dead three days later. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Jesus endured and absorbed the Father's anger so that we might forever be recipients of divine mercy. So may that truth, so much to be seen in Psalm 6, may it meet you right where you're at. May it be comforting in times of cheerfulness. May it be a balm of comfort, especially in times of heaviness and weariness. Let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord that You are so compassionate, that You are the God who listens, that You are the God who takes notice of our tears and You bottle them, that You are the God who promises His people that there is coming a day when You will put away all tears and You'll wipe them away and we would enter into a time where there will be nothing but bliss and rejoicing in Your very presence. Hallelujah. Father, in the here and now, Lord, may You grant Your saints the increased measures of perseverance and patience that they need in the midst of seasons of affliction, if they find themselves saying, but you, O Lord, how long? May you encourage them today that they are not alone. And Heavenly Father, may you lift up their countenances, even if you, um, perhaps in some cases you've done so already, may you lift up their countenances, even as you did in David's case. And for all of us, Heavenly Father, help us to fix our eyes upon Jesus the one who was troubled on our behalf, the one who drank the cup that we can never drink down in its entirety, but he exhausted it. 
Thank you for the good shepherd who laid his life down for the sheep. I pray for those who know him, Heavenly Father, that they will be strengthened in him even this day. And if there'd be anyone in this place who doesn't know him, Lord, I pray that by your mercy their hearts will be stirred and that they will depart from whatever is keeping them from coming to Christ and that they would come to Christ so that they would not hear on that day, depart from me. But rather let them hear from the words of Matthew 11 even now, come to me, all you who are wearied and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You'll find rest for your souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.